Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, October the 11th, 2012. This is episode 996 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a great one for you today. This is a very well-known author that we're going to have on today. Somebody that you guys have been asking me to bring on the show Honestly, for years, and uh, the kind of guy that you don't just bring on to a show, you, you'd have to do a little bit to, to get him to show up, and as is typical, the way that he ended up showing up wasn't us going after him, it was you guys going to him and saying, hey, you really need to go on the Survival Podcast. A lot of you guys have sent me plenty of emails saying, hey, why don't you go get so-and-so, why don't you... It actually works a lot better when a few different people from the audience go out and email or contact the person and say, hey, I listen to this show, and I follow your work, and would you come on uh, the Survival Podcast? Go here, fill out this guest form, they'll get in touch with you and get you scheduled. That's what happened here, and because of that, we have today James Howard Kunstler, author of The Long Emergency, Too Much Magic, World by Hand, and uh, World Made by Hand, and many other great books. Uh, too Much Magic and World Made by Hand being uh, fiction books with a look into the future and The Long Emergency being probably one of the best written uh, factual books on the concepts of peak oil and peak resource use and the future of our nation and our world uh, ever written. Uh, and I will have James on in just a bit. Before I do, though, let me go ahead and take care of our sponsors Sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, I say there's a there's a kind of a, a triangle of firearms effectiveness. There's three things that we need for firearms effectiveness. One is the firearm itself, good, well-functioning firearm. Two, ammunition. Your gun without ammunition is what? It's an expensive club. Uh, maybe a decent barter implement, something you can pawn for money, but it doesn't really do you any good as a defensive tool other than maybe you can club somebody with it. But the third one, and the one most often overlooked by not just preppers but people in general, is good tactical training. Fortress Defense Consultants is one of the best places in the world you can go get effective tactical training. Check them out today. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors are consummate professionals that are constantly not only teaching, but training with other instructors as well to continuously sharpen their skills and become better at what they do. And that's what they can do for you, make you better at what you do. And they can teach you not just how to effectively use firearms, but how to effectively use medical treatment to save the lives of others. I often hear in a mass shooting how many people's lives could have been saved if there had been one armed citizen there. And I often wonder, in addition to that, how many people's lives could have been saved if the people that were there also had good quality medical training that could be responsive until professional medical help arrived. So it's important to cover both sides of the coin, and Fortress Defense Consultants can help you do just that. Next up today, the Berkey guy, Jeff Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Well, you're going to get Berkey water filtration systems. That seems like a pretty obvious match, right? But why get your Berkey from the Berkey guy? Why not go to the other guy or the the next guy or the uh, the, the the gun guy who sells Berkeys? Because Jeff's the Berkey guy. Why would you go to anybody but the Berkey guy? There's there's a reason for that. Now, why is he called the Berkey guy? Well, I mean, honestly, because he was the first guy that was smart enough to go, gee, I'll be the Berkey guy. But, you know, he's earned the right to keep the title by becoming one of the top distributors of Berkeys in the world. 
with great service and great pricing and always taking care of the customer, going above and beyond to do just that. You guys, this audience, you're the toughest people in the world to please. If anybody stubs a toe the wrong way, I hear about it. I hear very little about anything with Jeff other than he did a great job for me. I Once in a while, I got a guy email me one time. He got the product and it was damaged in the mail. Did you talk to Jeff? No, I'm bringing it to you. Don't bring that to me. Talk to Jeff. He doesn't control the mail. And you know, a day later, Jeff's awesome, man. He took care of everything. That's the kind of service you're going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. And if you need other prepping items, he has some other really cool stuff there as well. They just started carrying the Mountain House uh, Buckets, which is a great product, and some other cool stuff. So check them out today at Directive21.com. The best way to find Fortress Defense Consultants, the Berkey Guy, and all of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on their banner in the right-hand margin, and uh, that way you know you're dealing with an official sponsor. Uh, also consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you'll be supporting the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. Uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics, uh, active duty, or prior service. If you email me before joining, I will send you a special discount code to thank you for your service to our nation and the world abroad. And I'll uh, give you a discount on an already great deal. The, Survi the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade, guys, is a great deal. It's not just a way to support the show. This is not public broadcasting. It's not PBS needing government handouts and assistance. When we deliver a product, we deliver value with it. How about discounts to over 36 vendors now? People you're probably doing business with anyway, or if you're doing business with somebody else, you're paying more for the same stuff. That's the kind of thing we have there. How about $150 worth of free eBooks? How about two discount memberships? Uh, that are worth $99 combined when you buy the $50 membership that you get uh, with the Member Support Brigade. That's just one example. Check it out today. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Okay, before I introduce James, I'm going to let you know this is one of the rare survival podcasts where you're going to hear a word, I think, just one time that typically doesn't get used. It begins with F and ends with a K. And you're going to hear it in a compound word form. I elected to leave it that way. I've marked the uh, episode explicit in iTunes uh, due to that, even though I drop words like shit all the time. You know, there's, there's like, I don't know. There's certain words that just push it a little bit beyond what's expected. I want you to know that. Some of you listen to it with your kids, and maybe you don't want them to hear that. It's very early on. It's about three to four minutes into the ep or into the, uh, into the, the, the segment. Uh, just wanted to say that, and hopefully it doesn't really offend anybody too much. Okay, with everything wrapped up, now I want to get into the main topic of today's show. And again, our uh, guest is James Howard Kunstler. You'll hear me call him Jim during the interview because he asked me to do that when I'm talking to him directly. Uh, but James is the author of, again, three really great books that I think, and other ones as well, but I think these are the three that this audience would be most into. Too Much Magic and World Made by Hand, fiction books looking into the future, The Long Emergency, a factual-based book on uh, peak oil, peak resource use, and the future that may await us. An incredible guy, wonderful blog. you got to check out his blog. It's at Kunstler.com. Uh, you can watch him go from supporting one side of the political spectrum to becoming a political atheist, and I love seeing people make that evolution. And with that, hey, uh, hey, Jim, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. It's a pleasure to be here, Jack. Hey, I was, uh, I've been told about you for a long time, read some of your writings. Today I was just going through um, your blog, and like, The, the question that pops into my mind is like the first question for you is, what is happening to us? 
Well, uh, there are a set of converging disturbances that are uh, that are making our reality rather difficult. And we are having a a very hard time with reality. We're having a very hard time constructing a coherent story about what is happening to us and what we're going to do about it. And what's happening is that there are three converging forces. Um, The first one is the, the peak oil story which is for real, despite a lot of the nonsense and propaganda emanating from the presidential candidates and and indeed from the news, the news media, you know, the people who say that we're on the verge of becoming energy independent and that we have 100 years of shale gas. Uh, That's all bullshit. It's not true. Um, uh, the, The problem is, is that we've sort of run out of the cheap, easy to get oil and the oil that's left is very expensive and rather hard to get. And uh, there's just no cure for that. Uh, the, the problem with it is manifold. For one thing, it destroys the basic equation for uh, financing an industrial economy, which is that you have to constantly increase energy inputs into the economic system in order, in order to generate enough wealth to pay back the interest uh, uh, on the debt that you owe. And so that is having a tremendous impact on the banking system and creating huge impairments in the operations of banking and, more importantly, in capital formation. Now, that might sound like a lot of abstract uh, gibberish, but capital formation is actually a a pretty simple idea. Uh, It's the idea of, of how a society manages its accumulated wealth and then deploys it for useful, future, productive purposes. And uh, we're having a, a great deal of trouble with that uh, right now. And in fact, we're, we're unable to do it. And we're in danger of actually destroying the financial system. And since my 2005 book, uh, The Long Emergency, came out, uh, in, in which uh, I first attempted to outline these uh, problems, uh, I think one thing has changed, and that is that the uh, impairments in the banking system and the financial system have grown so severe that they're beginning to overtake even the problems of peak oil. And in fact, indeed, are aggravating the problems of peak oil, because what we're discovering is that the capital will not be there to do the deep water drilling and the Arctic and the... Uh, uh, the tar sands, the oil shales, and all the other things that we were counting on to mitigate the end of cheap oil. Now, you just you just ruined my blind side. That was my blind side view. I was going to say, you know, don't you think that the financial crisis is such that it's going to actually be in front of the the energy emergency? And I guess you do. No, that's so exactly was, right. I was all happy, dude. I was going to spring that on you in the middle of the interview, and, and here you are dumping it out in the first three minutes. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that it, that the financial uh, clusterfuck has begun to overtake uh, the problems of peak oil. Now, the third thing, of course, is the climate change issue, which is so enormous that almost nobody can get can wrap their minds around it, and the few people who try generally come to such dire conclusions that uh, they make everybody else want to gargle with Gillette Blue Blades. So uh, all we know so far, and, you know, I think what we are generally telling ourselves, at least those of us who are paying attention, 
is that we're getting some pretty weird weather. Yeah. We had a, we had a uh, winter in the, in upstate New York last year without one meaningful snowfall. Now that's about as weird as it gets. And we had a very hot summer with, uh, you know, temperatures in the nineties for, uh, most of uh, June, July and August. So, you know, these are the kinds of things which, uh, 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 you can't ignore, although it doesn't particularly matter to me, you know, whether you knock yourself out proving that it was caused by uh, human activity or whether it's part of uh, a set of natural cycles. You know, either yeah, way. I mean, just, just to clear the air on that, I am of, the, of the, the second half of that. I believe this is a natural cycle. I still think it means we're screwed, and I don't think we're doing anything meaningful to address it. I don't think you have to choose between one or the other. And hmm. In fact, there's a good possibility that... Uh, you know, our activity is aggravating a natural cycle. Anyway, I don't think that's important. The important thing is something is something's happening, Mr. Jones, and we don't know what it is. Yeah. And it's taking us to weird places, which will probably result in things like dem- massive demographic movements of people leaving uh, areas that are becoming difficult to live in and trying to move desperately into other areas and and uh, problems with food production, people starving, crop failures, water problems. You know, all of these things suggest a massive amount of human suffering or at least hardship and vicissitude. And, and do you think that that impact is magnified by the stance that modern agriculture takes where there's no topsoil left, it's just all barren, they're creating deserts behind the tractor, basically, so that when there is a drought, it's more severe of its impact on crops? Yeah, I don't think there's any question of that either. Uh, you know, we, we've been experiencing the, the blowback or the unintended consequences of, you know, technological applications for farming uh, for quite a while. You know, uh, we saw what happened in the 1920s when uh, the Ford tractor became such a universal tool in farming in the United States that, it, you know, it, it basically created helped, helped to create the Dust Bowl because so many more acres of soil were being tilled and, uh, uh, and, and it was being farmed in a, a relatively careless way. And, you know, that... That coincides with a multi-year drought, and uh, voila, you get the dust bowl. So, uh, yeah, I think it's certainly true that uh, we have uh, a huge problem with uh, soil depletion and soil degradation and water problems, etc. But the important thing beyond that is to understand that all of the problems that we face with the complex systems we depend on for daily life will have a tendency to mutually reinforce each other's instabilities and ramify the problems that they create for each other and for us. So if you have problems with agriculture, you're going to have problems with politics. If you have problems with, uh, you know, oil uh, and transport, you're going to have empty supermarket shelves, and that will become a political problem. Uh, it will, you know, if you have a problem with energy, it's going to show up in uh, banking and finance and um, the, the difficulty in uh, paying back debt and generating new debt. So all of these things have huge ramifications. Yeah, and I, I, as I've been reading your writing, I've watched you, you stray more to the side of being basically a political atheist, I guess is the way that I would describe it. But there's no answers on either side there. I mean, everybody knows the joke now about Obama with the empty chair, and I feel like in the debates the joke should be two empty suits. 
Um, so w- w- with that being said, with it doesn't seem like anybody in leadership actually wants to try to fix this, what, what the heck do we do about this? That's a very good question. Uh, first of all, uh, I would like to identify what I think is going on. Be- because of a quirk in you know, human nature, there's such a thing as the psychology of human... Yeah. Because of a quirk in human nature, there's such a thing as the psychology of previous investment. And that's got us in a trap. And the trap is that, uh, you know, we put all of the wealth of the, this stupendously wealthy society into building an infrastructure for daily life that has no future. You know, the, the highly oil dependent, car dependent, suburban, uh, living arrangement of America. And so the likelihood is, because of the psychology of previous investment, we're going to do everything possible to defend those investments. So what you're seeing politically on both sides of the spectrum is we're ramping up a campaign to sustain the unsustainable one way or the other. You know, whether it's the so-called Republican conservative way or the so-called liberal uh, democratic way. You know, it's still a campaign to sustain the unsustainable, which is to keep Walmart, Walt Disney World and the interstate highway system running at all costs. Uh, I think it's important to realize that we're not going to, that uh, we're going to be disappointed by uh, how that works out. Uh, And in particular, with uh, the alternative fuel uh, and alternative energy situation. Um, but it doesn't mean that we should just get depressed and sit around and wring our hands. There's a lot that we can do to uh, uh, make this transition into what the next phase of uh, American civilization will be, and indeed human history. But we're just not paying attention and we're not doing it. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Now, on, on the peak oil thing, if I'd ask you, because when you say it's we can't keep doing it, I, I agree where I wonder is what a timeline looks like. Because I remember very clearly, and I'm a young guy, I'm about 40 years old. So this would have been back around 1983, 1984. I was in like eighth grade. And I remember my science book, which was probably from the Carter administration because I was in, you know, it was the mid-80s. So, of course, your textbook's 10 years old. And I remember a timeline on fossil fuels in that book. And I remember very clearly a picture of an oil well in 35 years. If we even say it was there was a brand new book in 1983, that means by 2018 there should be no oil left. Now, I think you and I both know that's not the case, but what does the timeline look like in your mind in the bell curve to where we realize that fate? Uh, my guess is that the, the last several years and perhaps another couple few years ahead okay. will represent what has been called the bumpy plateau. That top piece where the bell curve starts to come down on, on the peak production on the yeah, other Yeah, and, you know, it, it's called the bumpy plateau because if you look at it a, a little more closely, if you make the graph a little bit larger in scale, you know, you see a, a kind of system reaching a top and then in an unstable way kind of uh, oscillating back and forth as economies uh, uh, react to high oil prices and uh, oil use goes down and then uh, the price of oil comes down a bit, and then people start using oil again, and then the oil price goes up. And in the meantime, economies are getting shredded by this process. Sure. Because each time you get that up-and-down oscillation, you get more and more industrial activities, uh, or, or shall we say advanced economic activities, shutting down for one reason or another. Um, at least that's been the case in the United States and in parts of Europe. And... Um, you know, so I, I think we may have another year or two 
left of that, maybe three. But what, what has happened is that the, the complex system that we depend on uh, to uh, provide us with money and, and for, for really for running the lifeblood of the economy um, is the most abstract of the systems that we uh, rely on, and that is banking. And it's abstract. I say it's abstract because um, it's not about, uh, you know, producing potatoes or wheat or meat or things you can actually touch. It's not about moving things around uh, on four wheels. You know, no, it's creating the illusion of value in a medium of exchange. That, that's how I define banking. Although I'm not sure I would call it the illusion because, in fact, that's the, that's the current problem is that at its best, a money system does actually represent what it, what it purports to represent. Absolutely. A store Absolutely. of value that is a predictable store of value. You know, a, as the system begins to unravel, then, you know, all of the things that, that come under the heading of price discovery start to malfunction. And so you don't get the uh, correct price of anything. And eventually, you know, and markets don't function, which is happening with the equity markets and the housing market and, you know, many other markets. And pretty soon people start to lose faith in that medium of exchange, uh, namely a currency. And so, uh, uh, you know, at its best, uh, that actually does function pretty well, but uh, it's not functioning too well for us now. But getting back to your question, I think this, what the situation is, is that this most abstract of the systems we depend on is the one that has become the most unstable and is going to cause the most mischief uh, straight ahead. And it's already threatening to create huge amounts of political instability, which all bets are off about, you know, questions like civil order. Now, for the moment, this is more pronounced in Europe. But... Uh, yep. You know, we could easily get to that point in the United States if a few things were to happen. If, if we had, uh, you know, some kind of uh, an event in the Middle East that choked up uh, oil for a while, at least uh, that portion of our supply of imports. Or if we got a situation where, you know, supply chains started breaking down and the supermarket shelves were not being stocked the way we're used to seeing them, you know, things like that. A few more credit downgrades or God knows what, I think. that Because to me, the biggest thing that gives the currency its value in a modern society, the way they do modern banking, is your and, and my agreement together that that particular currency has value. Yeah. And as soon as the agreement fails, it's it doesn't matter what you do to manipulate it after that. Once the confidence in the agreement breaks down, all bets are off. Yeah, a currency is really a contract between – it's an, an open contract between, you know, two people uh, that something has a certain value and can be exchanged openly for that – for more stuff of equal value. And if that confidence breaks down, you know, all bets are off about how you manage uh, an economic system, even at the, you know, the most uh, down-to-earth level of your local community. So, I mean, what – what should we be doing to fix this, and what do, what are the people that claim to be trying to fix it doing, and how do those two things differ from each other? Well, that's a very interesting question, and, you know, I, I travel around a lot. I do college lectures. I talk to a lot of people, go to conferences. One of the things that I notice, you know, uh, in the context of, I think, what you touched on before, which I call a comprehensive failure of leadership, because it's not just political. 
you know, it's leadership in all realms and, uh, you know, in all ways. But uh, uh, th- there are groups of people, for instance, who we, we would like to think we're depending on to think clearly about these things, and they have their heads up their ass. I uh, attended the Aspen Environment Forum for three years, and that was a very interesting uh, example of this because there you had the cream of the environmental intelligentsia, and whenever they were faced with the question of uh, peak oil or our extreme car dependency or the prospects for the failure of, of the suburban lifestyle, the only thing they really wanted to talk about was how they were going to run all the cars by other means. And that really excited them, you know. Oh, <laughs> we can run them on our, uh, we can all drive electric cars. We'll all have hybrid Priuses. Yeah, because electricity comes from a jelly bean field, right? No, it comes from a plug in the wall. <laughs> so, you know, what that told me was, you know, the intellectual failure at that level is so severe and striking. You know, if those people can't think straight about our quandary, then who are you going to depend on? You know, the Romneys of the world? I don't think so. So uh, you have this tremendous uh, leadership failure, and it's leading us, you know, this whole idea that we're going to run the interstate highway system on uh, ethanol and, and uh, hybrid cars is part of what I have referred to as the campaign to sustain the unsustainable. You know, we're not going to do that. Uh, the people in Aspen uh, do not want to talk about the things that could really make a difference, like walkable communities or rebuilding the conventional railroad system in America. And I want to talk about this for a moment because it's very important. You know, uh, sure. my latest book is a book called Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking, Technology, and the Fate of the Nation. And, you know, one of the main points behind the book is that we are indulging in what I call techno-narcissism or techno-grandiosity. You know, we think that Santa Claus is going to deliver a set of technological rescue remedies that will allow us to keep running Walmart and the interstate highway system in Walt Disney World. And, you know, it's not likely to happen. And what, among this bundle of wishes is this idea that we're, we're going to build a high-speed rail network in the USA. That's not going to happen. We missed the window of opportunity for doing that. That was in the 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, you know, when there was still a lot of real uh, cash around and a lot of real ability to generate more debt. But we can't do that anymore. We're not going to build a high-speed rail network. We may begin a couple of lines from Sacramento to L.A., and we may not finish those, you know. But we have a perfectly good conventional railroad system that's lying out there rusting in the rain waiting to be fixed, and we're doing nothing about it. There's no conversation about it. The fact is that the airline industry is going to crap out. It's already on its last legs, really. I mean, they they can't fire any more employees and still run. They can't pay the pilots any less than they're already paying them. Um, uh, they can't merge anymore. Uh, they can reduce more routes, but, you know, that will just be a, a the most conspicuous contraction of the industry. So we're not going to have an airline industry in 5, 10, 20 years. Uh, we're probably not going to have the happy motoring system. And uh, the happy motoring system of, you know, everybody owning a car or two um, is going to fail on, uh, it's going to fail for reasons that go way beyond the fuel issue. And this is something people don't get. And it's part of the whole, you know, capital 
formation impairment issue. Um, there, you know, people, Americans are used to buying cars on installment loans. That's the normal way that they buy cars. And because of what will be the capital scarcities of, of the years ahead, there's going to be far fewer loans for people to buy cars. Yeah, I've said that often. Like, what do you think an average house would sell for or an average car or any big ticket item would sell for if the the buyer had to only take cash for it? And there's no way we would have had the inflationary curve of large ticket items that we do without financing at the individual level and without like heavy financing. Even if you did a you know 50% down, 50% financing model, which could be some kind of interim step as the banking system goes to hell. Um, still, that would just that you can't sell big ticket items that way. Nobody has the cash. Yeah, the and I don't think that it works is because the people only care about the payment. I don't think there will be an intermediary step. Uh, you know, I think that it'll it'll simply be a recognition that that model is broken and doesn't probably, work probably forever. Um, so, you know, there are many other ways that the uh, uh, car dependency situation in America can break down and will break down probably sooner rather than later, and it won't be just oil. So. You know, we're going to have to get around this big country. We're going to have to get goods around this big country and, and commodities. And if we don't fix the railroad system, we're going to be in deep, deep trouble. And we're not even talking about it. It hasn't been part of the uh, – the, it hasn't been an issue in the last two presidential elections. And you've got to understand this. You know, first of all, this is a, a system that would put tens of thousands of people to work at good jobs at every level. Secondly, it would benefit people uh, of all uh, uh, classes in America. And it's a project that we can do as a people to demonstrate that we're capable of doing something to uh, uh, build our confidence so that we can go on to the other tasks that we have to accomplish in order to make a transition to the next economy. And I mean, because to me, this seems like it would be like a gateway to more resilient small communities because absolutely everybody wants to build like this self-sufficient, self-sustaining community. That's like the eco-hippie super dream. And the problem with that is you can build a community almost anywhere in this country and you can be highly self-reliant, but you are not going to be 100% self-sufficient. The, that comes from commerce with other communities because I can grow oranges in Florida and apples in Washington. And I have to have some way to bridge these communities together, and rail makes perfect sense to me. Well, that's right. And I don't know that there is an alternative to that. And we're just not, you know, it just shows the failure in leadership at all levels. It's a political failure. It's a failure of business leadership. It's a failure of academic leadership. Uh, so, you know, that that's a huge thing, but there are all these other tasks that that await our attention, namely <clears throat> uh, reforming agriculture. We're going to have to grow more of our food locally at a much smaller scale, probably using more humans to attend to it, perhaps using more animals to do some of the uh, actual work. Um, we don't know how much, you know, we, we don't know how this is going to work out, but we're not even thinking about doing it. We're going to help. No, and it, it's, I mean, the animal that you can actually trace modern agriculture back and you can see when animals came off the farm is when chemical fertilizer went on the farm. And, and we took that, you know, animals, you know, pulling a plow is one thing, but animals converting carbon matter into waste for the soil 
is, is a role that it's, you know, instead of being out on the farm, all the cows are in a CAFO and then the soybean fields over here. And, and, and that, that's a huge part of why the soil is depleted. And part of their work is soil improvement. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, the breeding and training and management of, uh, draft animals is, uh, uh, a kind of whole, holistic agricultural system. Uh, now we're fortunate that there are still a lot of people out there, you know, mostly hobbyists of one kind or another, you know, who still know how to breed oxen and, and train them and mules and preserving the skill sets. Yeah. The skill sets are still there. Uh, the breeding stock is pretty limited. I don't know how long it would take us to really ramp up, uh, enough to do it. There's a question of how we would, you know, reorganize the landscape to accomplish this because so much of our good agricultural land has been paved over in the last 50 years. And, uh, there's really no model for, uh, for how this is reorganized, uh, in terms of, you know, who, who owns the land. Uh, one of the problems with uh, revolutionary moments is that they tend to galvanize around the question of who retains wealth in land and productive land. And, and that's when you get, you know, ownership of land uh, changing and, and uh, uh, land being seized and taken away from those who have it and being redistributed. And you know, that, that is characteristic of revolutions. Yeah, Stalin killing the farmers and then wondering why everybody starved. Well, that was one way. That was the Russian method. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, the, you have other uh, models for that. You know, in France, uh, the, uh, in 1789, the model was to take away the land from the aristocracy and from the church and redistribute it to other people. And, uh, you know, that's, that's another model. So we don't know what the model for that will be in the USA or if it will even get down to that. But the fact that, that we're not even thinking about how that happens uh, kind of suggests that we're going we're gonna to get in trouble with that, and it, it may come down to a, an unappetizing political solution. We do know that billions of dollars in the last two years from huge uh, high-level investors of the status of like Jim Rogers has you know, poured into buying up ag and timberland. So we do know the money's already positioned there. Well, the, yeah, and that's interesting because those are the very people who may be actually most subject to confiscation <laughs> because, you know, they don't have any real hands-on, uh, uh, you know, day-to-day -day investment in managing that land. It's just, you know, it belongs to some holding company that they control, but, uh, you know, can easily be taken away from them. But I don't want to get ahead of myself because my, my big thing is actually not revolutionary politics. Uh, you know, I'm not that kind of an extremist. I just, uh, uh, you know, recognize that it's part of a potential picture. If we don't manage our affairs and don't make the kind of reforms that we got to do, you know, another one of the things we got to do is we got to inhabit the landscape differently. The suburban uh, model of uh, settlement, you know, is an experiment that is going to fail. Uh, we're also going to discover that the giant metroplex cities are going to fail, too, for somewhat different reasons. Um, but we have no idea how we're going to resolve that either. And uh, we're going to be seeing demographic movements. I happen to think that the resolution of that will be that people will re-inhabit exactly the smaller towns and cities that, are, that have been on the ropes for the last 30 The ones that have been deserted. Yeah, the places like, you know, uh, Syracuse, New York, and Gloversville, New York, around where I am, and, you know, the, the town I live in, and, uh, you know, these are all 
towns that have lost their economy, lost population, uh, lost vitality, have become deactivated. But they have one thing that's very important. They have proximity to uh, uh, good productive farms. They have some other things going for them. They, they uh, exist in proximity to water power, to good running fresh water, and to water trans- transport, you know, inland waterways, which will become very important in America, and rail, if we can get our act together and fix the railroad system. So I'm in the upper Hudson Valley in New York, which is part of the Hudson uh, Erie Canal, Champlain Canal, Great Lakes, St. Lawrence Seaway system. It's uh, crucial to trade in North America. But, you know, we also have uh, that the, we have one of the most wonderful inland waterway systems in the world. You know, the Ohio, Missouri, Mississippi system, the Great Lakes themselves, which are like a freshwater Mediterranean Sea. And I think what we're going to see uh, as globalism withers, which it will do, it already is, as globalism withers, you're going to see a much more internally focused North American economy that's going to have to get its act together. And um, so th- these are some more of the systems that we have to pay attention to fixing up. For example, the inland waterways. Well, we've been busy for the last 30 years building condominiums and bandshells and bike paths and performance spaces on our, our riverfronts. Guess what? We need to put back docks and warehouses and the sleazy accommodations for sailors and boatmen. <laughs> but you know, we're not doing it, and we're not even thinking about it. It's not part of the political discussion. Well, I mean, what you're saying has a huge ringing of truth to it, but it's something that I can't see any political person stating if they'd actually like to be elected because it's not anything anybody wants to hear. Yeah, well, I think what you'll probably see is a lot of these self-evident things that we've got to do, these tasks that we've got to perform, you know, uh, will not be articulated politically until the public is more or less dragged, kicking and screaming to a recognition of what the fuck is going on in reality. Yeah, and I think another thing will be people will just, like, naturally start doing some of these things on their own because they'll get tired of waiting for somebody to come help them. And I think that we're moving to a place where you're going to have a society of doers and and waiters. And the waiters, I think, are going to get hurt a lot worse. Well, that's already happening. And, you know, frankly, I, I, I can see it in my county here on the agricultural scene. Uh, I'm in Washington County, New York, which is roughly 200 miles north of New York City, halfway between Montreal and New York, and about 15 miles from the Vermont border on the eastern upstate New York. And this was a dairying region uh, for about the last 100 years. But, you know, let's remember that dairy farming is largely an industrial activity because, it, you know, it, it really didn't get ramped up uh, in the form that we know it until you got stuff like electric milking machines and bulk refrigeration and uh, refrigerated transport and all that stuff. But uh, dairy farming pretty much characterized the region of upstate New York uh, up until about 20 years ago when it really started to fail in a major way, uh, to some extent because of competition from Wisconsin and California, but uh, also because the, the sun's uh, uh, the children of the dairy farmers knew how hard it was to per- pursue that way of life. 
you know, you could never leave the farm because the cows always had to be milked. You could never go on vacation. You could never take a weekend off and go anywhere. You had to get up at three o'clock in the morning. It was it was a terrible uh, killing occupation. So they didn't want to do it. So they checked out. So we've had a total failure of dairy farming in upstate New York. But over the last 10, 15 years, we've slowly had an infiltration of younger people buying up the farms and now uh, devoting them to new uses. They're growing table vegetables and greens for the restaurants, for the farmer's markets. They're growing specialty uh, meat products on a small scale. You know, they're not factory farms. They're growing small scale, you know, uh, lamb, pig, goat, chicken operations. Uh, and it's become uh, quite a robust scene here to see this all happen. Um, yeah, there's huge demand for it. The, the only problem I see is the government keeps making it more and more difficult for those people to do business. Well, it's not like, it's the solution, and we don't want it. It's not just the government. Um, they have plenty of trouble competing with the, uh, the, with the supermarket chain's uh, sure. you know, meat bin or, or vegetable uh, department. You know, it, uh, it, it may not be until the supply chain's you know, the giant supply chains that we depend on get into trouble, that local agriculture will really uh, uh, find footing. Um, but we don't know yet. One thing I wanted to say about this was that uh, societies are uh, essentially uh, emergent phenomena. You know, they're, they're self-organizing. Uh, they respond to the circumstances of their time and place sometimes with, a, with a, a great lag, as is happening in our case, because of the tremendous inertia of the sheer wealth that we accumulated in the last hundred years. But, you know, sooner or later, uh, societies have to emergently reform themselves uh, in response to the circumstances that reality presents. And we're seeing that now somewhat in, you know, the, the micro example of the ag scene in my county, but I think we'll see it on a, a large scale all over the United States. Uh, of course, it will coincide with a lot of strange and, uh, um, you know, dis strange disorders and, and uh, demographic movements that people will be disturbed about. You know, we're going to see things like uh, the cities get into trouble because they, they simply don't have the they're too, they're too broke. They're, they, they can't fix their water systems and their sewer systems. Uh, you know, we're going to see trouble with the electric grid, which is decrepit. And, uh, you know, we're, we're used to absolutely reliable electric service in America. Very few Americans walk into a room and reach for a light switch and are surprised when the lights actually come on. But, you know, absolutely. Yeah, you expect that. So, you know, we, uh, we're faced with all these uh, tremendous potential instabilities, and yet, uh, you know, I think we can be fairly confident that things will happen. You know, we will respond eventually to the forces that are acting upon us. Yeah, let me throw one more into the works for you, and I want your thoughts on this. First, so that no one gets the wrong idea, and I think most people listening to the show wouldn't, no one is more for getting rid of genetically modified organisms in our food supply than I am. 
California is working on that, and they have a thing called Prop 37 uh, on the ballot coming this time around. And the Monsantos of the world are pouring billions into trying to prevent it. I think it will pass. Now, this creates an interesting thing, because Nabisco or Post or Kellogg's or whatever can't possibly afford to create one set of packaging for labeling for California and uh, packaged labeled differently for every other state in the union. So if this, that passes and they have to put may contain GMOs on the box of Frosted Flakes or whatever, that's going to basically be a nationwide thing for at least the big major global distribution brands. Yeah. Once that happens, it creates this extreme reflux action in the population. I don't want that, right? Now, the problem comes here. Most of the corn, the soy, etc. being grown today is GMO. Most of it that they're going to use to, to make the food next year was grown this year. So even if the farmers immediately catch on to this and try to switch... You've got a one-year lag of, of all this food that people will only eat if they're starving because nobody wants it, wants to know. Kind of like what happened with the pink slime thing with Walmart yanking it off the shelves eventually. Then this is, this is the part that I think nobody realizes. It's so scary. These clouds have been drenching their fields with 2,4-D and Roundup and all these herbicides that this genetic food is designed to, 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 to deal with. And if you just switch it now... There's a recovery period for that soil to be able to grow non-modified food. So to me, that's a huge, like, it's a good thing causing a, a, a potentially very complex set of consequences to pay for the stupidity of the last 10 years. Well, it, it kind of goes to Joseph Tainter's idea of uh, civilizations getting into trouble uh, by uh, heaping too much complexity upon prior complexity. Uh, Joseph uh, Tainter is an anthropologist at, uh, I think, Utah State University, and his seminal book is called The Collapse of Complex Civilizations. And, uh, you know, the basic idea is that you reach a point of diminishing returns by over-complexifying things, and that's exactly what you've just described. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about kind of the model to, to, and it's not really a model to fix it. It's a model to deal with reality. This distributed, resilient community model connected by rail, connected by waterway. Yeah. More people working in, in agricultural, which, I mean, there's plenty of people without a job. There's, there's millions of people riding the government all with nothing else to do. You might as well gainfully employ them in meaningful works. But do you think there are any technological solutions, and I don't mean you know, zero-point energy making us able to keep everything running the way it is, but are there, are there places where we should be investing in, in, in new technological developments to go along with this concept? Well, that's, that's a very hard question, because uh, uh, right now I think our greatest need is to simplify uh, everyday life and all of the operations necessary to support it. And um, I think that we are wasting our time uh, and, and, and spirit and uh, our, our mental energy, uh, you know, engaging in this uh, techno-narcissistic search for rescue remedies. So uh, it's going to probably be more a matter of holding on to technological knowledge that we already possess because we're, we're apt to lose an awful lot of it. 
um, and to perform a kind of a triage operation to decide, you know, which of these things really have long-term benefits for us and which of them don't. You know, I, I dare say that we'll probably reach a point where we decide that iPads and smartphones are not as important as learning how to breed a good ox. Yeah, okay. So, you know, in other words, I think that this is, you know, the whole technological rabbit hole is a very dangerous uh, thing for us to engage in for the moment. You know, uh, I, I happen to think as a matter of principle that we are heading into a time and a situation that I would characterize as a timeout from, in, from technological progress as we've known it, okay? We have come to expect a, a constant cavalcade of technological marvels and wonders because we were programmed for that by the last hundred-odd years of, of what happened in advanced civilizations. You know, we got this uh, uh, pageant of wonders from you know, telephones, uh, airplanes, motion pictures, uh, television, computers, uh, atom bombs, uh, so et cetera. To uh, expect that, you know, the next hundred years will be exactly the same procession of wonders and marvels and rescue remedies. And, and I just think we're going to be very shocked to, to, to uh, discover that we have, in fact, entered what's called a discontinuity, that is a break from, you know, prior uh, conditions. Constant growth, constant progress, constant technological evolution. And what to me is almost the dangerous part of it is if we've built an economic system that requires that constant growth to be sustainable. Um, if you look at most companies, if a company grows at 2%, it's not a really healthy company, but it's, it's okay. In, in this day and age, if the global economy grows at 2%, it's a freaking disaster. Yeah, well, um, you know, and I, I maintain that we're uh, not only are we going to get this time out from what we've come to regard as uh, our entitled technological progress, but we need it. We need a rest period. We need a period to, to reflect on what it is that we have already done and on the mutilations and insults to the ecosystem that have occurred and, you know, figure out what our next step is going to be as, uh, you know, a civilized, sentient uh, form of animal life uh, before we completely destroy the, the means for existence at all on this planet. So, so... I think that we need to prepare for this time out from, in, from uh, technological progress and to do it consciously. And uh, it doesn't mean we all turn into hobbits, you know, but what it does mean is that we need some kind of a conscious model uh, or at least a, a, a recognition that we're heading off in another direction now that requires different forms of behavior. And, I mean, I think you see this more as an evolution than what a lot of people listening to this would think of and say, you know, this guy's talking about the end of the world. So are you seeing this as the end of the world or maybe a shift in the world? Well, I can understand why people get pretty depressed about it. Um, and there are a lot of reasons to be gloomy, but uh, the, the fact is that none of us really knows 
what the outcome of this transition is going to be. Now, I tried to fully imagine it uh, after I wrote uh, The Long Emergency in 2005, which was a nonfiction book about this uh, range of uh, predicaments. I undertook to, wrote, to write two novels, um, that is, works of fiction, depicting a post-oil, post-economic collapse American future. And uh, they were published by the Atlantic Monthly Press. The first one was called World Made by Hand. And then I wrote a sequel called The Witch of Hebron. And I uh, am aiming to write one for each of the four seasons, so I'm working on the third one right now. And the reason I did that was to try to depict in a very vivid, tactile way what it would feel like to live in this post-oil world. Um, and to really be immersed in the changes that you and I are talking about. So, you know, nonfiction uh, and discursive uh, discussion is one way of describing what we face, but I think it's important to kind of understand it in, a, in an emotional way, too, and that's what I try to do. Bring the human touch into it. Well, to, you know, to make, to make it possible for people to feel or experience what it's like to live in a world where you're no longer tyrannized by automobiles, where you're, you're no longer able to just roll out to the supermarket and get a frozen burrito, but you actually have to, uh, you know, depend on, your, on what you and your neighbors grow for your daily bread. And what it's like to uh, live in a, uh, a small community that has sort of reformed itself after the calamities of um, gigantic uh, advanced technological civilization and um, your shoulder to the wheel and work with your neighbors and uh, make music with your neighbors and uh, and also frankly to discover that that will be a world in which it's possible to experience joy and all of the other uh, human elements uh, that, that make life worth living because a lot of people assume that we're moving into some kind of a new uh, phase of history that will be joyless and without any kind of positive uh, emotion or, or spiritual reward. And I think that's not true at all. I think that we will actually, if we can successfully move away from some of our entanglements and addictions and dependencies on this massive complexity that will actually be more in touch with the world and with reality and, and nature and our nature and the nature of our fellow human beings and the other, uh, the other beings that we share the planet with and that there's actually a lot of room for a positive outcome to all this. Now, there's a lot of people out there that, that think that you're spot on with this, but they also feel like, well, until then, I'm screwed, and I might not make it through this transition because they know that they're not going to get this done with government. They're one voice screaming in the wilderness, and, and but I've always said to focus on what they can do for themselves. So for that person, what is your advice? What should that person be doing now to prepare for this time of transition? Well, I can say what I did. You know, uh, I think That's great. I think you have to be very careful about the place that you select to be your home and that there are a number of conditions that uh, should be a red flag not to go there. You know, I wouldn't move to suburbia. 
I wouldn't move to the southwest uh, United States because I think that that place is going to be a very disorderly place. I think Dixieland is going to be pretty disorderly for reasons I stated in The Long Emergency, namely that, uh, uh, you know, you've got a problem with a culture that uh, uh, exalts extreme individualism and has a romance with firearms. And the recipe for that is liable to be, you know, the defense of extreme individualism with bullets. So I think that the Dixieland is going to be a disorderly place. I think that I think that the South is is going to become once again what it was before 1950, an agricultural backwater, and that we will see uh, uh, that that the economic prosperity that they ramped up in the last 50 years will now reverse and and become proportionally uh, a uh, return to a, a, a much lower standard of living, you know, in, in places like, uh, you know, Georgia and uh, Atlanta and Texas and, and really that whole region. Um, I think that the Great Lakes are going to be, uh, are, are going to uh, regain importance that they haven't had for, you know, 70, 100 years. Um, I think the upper Midwest is a place that probably has a lot of good potential because of the sheer amount of good ag land that's up there still. Uh, I think that the small towns and small cities that uh, are close to good productive farmland uh, are places that are worth considering. So uh, all that I think is important. Um, I do think that there, I would not discount the idea that we're in for a certain amount of civic disorder you know, I, I'm not promoting it, and I'm not a, uh, you know, uh, a mad maxitarian. <laughs> but I think one, one ought to be uh, aware of the possibility that, um, you know, there could be a lot of unhappy people out there who uh, uh, get violent. Uh, there are many scenarios that you could cook up uh, that, that would take it that way, but it's just not out of the question. It's certainly not. I mean, you mentioned Atlanta. There was a story about a year ago, uh, about a year and a half ago, it was around Memorial Day, where uh, some of the residents of Atlanta didn't get their food card, you know, food stamp card recharged. And then when they were waiting for Monday for it to happen, because it didn't happen on Friday like it was supposed to, Monday was a holiday. Yeah. And they showed up at the building, and they damn near tore the wall off the building. There wasn't even anybody in there, and there wasn't anything anybody could do for them. And they had only gone a few days Without now magnify that by a few months and then do it all over the United States and yeah urban centers I think can become really dangerous places really fast. Uh, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more of that, but you know the fact me as well there hasn't. And but you know again it's something that I think you have to prepare for. Um, another thing that uh, that I did was you know and not everybody can do this, but. I very carefully selected a place to live that was on the edge of a small town, an old factory village that has no industry left, but is located on uh, a, a real good uh, uh, small river that has a lot of hydroelectric potential. Um, I can walk to the center of Main Street. I have three acres so that I can have a substantial garden, and I built a substantial garden after I moved here last November. Um, I planted a lot of fruit trees. You know, I, I understand that uh, people can come and take your food away. That's a theme in the survival community. And it's, you know, it's something you can't discount. 
Yeah, it's not something we worry about here, though, because I tell people I'd rather have food to defend than not have food. Well, I think that's, I mean, that's just, it doesn't, very good That's point. like a non-starter argument for me. You know, If I have a garden, somebody will take my tomatoes. Dude, maybe you'll be able to trade your tomatoes, eat your tomatoes, etc. Yeah, I, I, I don't buy into that. Well, I agree with you. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, but I also see a certain amount of uh, ground from the ground up uh, emergent community building beginning to occur out here uh, in this small town in Washington County, New York. And uh, it is happening even while the gigantic forces that work against it are still operating pretty well. You know, and by that, I mean, you know, the supermarket, the big corporations, uh, the government subsidies of all kinds of terrible things. Now, these things are still, for the moment, exerting their power uh, on our community and on our lives. But notwithstanding that, we're already beginning to see the emergence of, uh, you know, an armature of a new economy that might be possible in this remote little upstate county. Which, you know, gives you a lot of hope because if they can exist with this much opposition, if that opposition becomes crippled or weakened by some of the things we agree are coming, that means that they're in a perfect position to continue that model forward. That's an excellent point. I think it is very, very uh, important. And um, another piece of this that uh, reassures me is that a lot of these people are young people. Uh, and um, they, they they understand the potential. Uh, they understand what this transition is liable to be about, and uh, they're they're um, doing what they need to do, and they're doing it intelligently. And it's really uh, very gratifying to to meet them and get to know them. And I've made a lot of new friends since I moved here from 15 miles away, and in, in uh, a year, almost exactly a year ago. Yeah, I know. I do a lot of lecturing at like permaculture workshops and things like that, and I am blown away by how many 21, 22-year-old kids are there. And it's very, very encouraging. I think it's part of them learning to do math and going, all of this crap that I was promised by my parents' generation ain't going to be there for me, and i got to do something for myself. Yeah, where are you, by the way, Jack? I'm in uh, I'm in Arkansas and heading back to Texas, so I'm not worried. I think you uh, you would recommend, but <laughs> uh, actually, your philosophy of the type of of, of town, uh, the type of, of arrangement, I completely agree with, and it's exactly how I've set myself up. The reason we're moving back into Texas is because my wife is dealing not dealing well with the separation from family, so we're looking to do something that puts us within a better proximity to her family, but maintain the small community uh, type of arrangement, uh, multiple acreage. I live on five acres. I have a tremendous amount of garden stuff put in, and I like actually better land, and there's some really good agricultural land in Texas, and there's some really good waterways as well, and it's a, the key is getting the proximity that you're talking there. The one place I really worry about the South, and I've talked about this a lot with anything with sustainable energy, is I could move to a place in, let's say, New Hampshire or Vermont, and I could build a really efficient home, and I could heat with wood, and with a one-acre wood lot, I could probably harvest a quarter or two of wood a year and sustainably do that and heat my home, and I could be very comfortable. You can't do that with cooling, and one of the things that really held the South back in, in, you know, in the early years of this country was the heat. Absolutely. And that's I've the challenges we're going to have here. 
I've written about this a lot. I, I think people really un, underestimate how punishing the southern climate is. And, you know, there's a reason why there were no cities of any consequence in the south until, really, air conditioning got ramped up. Yeah, turn your turn your freaking air conditioner off for 48 hours in July, and you'll get the picture real fast. And it's worse now because at least then homes were built with heavy timbers and high high roofs and a lot of... Uh, consideration to natural air movement and the prefabricated suburban home of today is absolutely abysmal at mitigation of heat because thanks to Dr. York, we don't need to worry about that anymore. Right. I, I saw an interesting illustration of that in uh, New Orleans a few years ago. There was a guy who, in effect, he was the uh, architectural police captain for the French Quarter. It was his job to make sure that uh, the renovations were done with historical respect, et cetera. Preserve what was there. Yeah. But uh, I, went to his, I went to his own home, uh, which was just on the other side of the Esplanade. Um, and uh, he had worked out all the old systems for cooling. You know, he had a house that had, uh, you know, 10 or 12 foot ceilings. And he had a lot of vegetation around the house. And he had, a, you know, the Bermuda shutters and all of the... Uh, 19th century technology for keeping a house about 15 degrees cooler than the air outside. So, you know, it was 93 degrees outside, but it was maybe, you know, uh, uh, 79 inside his living room. Which And that's bearable, and you've got the yeah. Gulf influence there. But then you move inland to a place like Dallas or a place like Tyler, Texas, or Little Rock, Arkansas. If it's 115 degrees outside, yeah. and you've managed to compensate by 15 degrees, guess what the temperature is? Yeah. 100 freaking degrees. And and that's a stark reality that I think many people living in the South don't understand. And I think that that's best addressed through construction methodology that's, that's very difficult to get done today, to get permitting for, to get financing for, uh, you know, partial underground housing geodesic dome construction, things like that, that allow for greater efficiencies of cooling. And it's like, you know, and I've tried to do this, and I've found government in the way at every layer. And there's like these little pockets of freedom you can find. But unfortunately, to get that freedom, you have to kind of pull back from the whole concept of like the small town, let's rebuild it thing. Well, uh, I, I, one, of the, one of the things that I've maintained in my books is that uh, we're going to get to a point where we're probably going to have to ignore the building codes because they won't be reformed, but it will become self-evident that they can't really be followed anymore. Sure. Plus, you know, you're going to see a situation where municipalities are so broke that they won't be able to pay the enforcement officers. So, yeah, they can't afford the enforcement. I mean, we've, we've seen that. We had a lady on the air who was being harassed over a garden, and I organized a phone bomb to the city to say basically leave this lady alone. And we had to reschedule it from Friday to Monday because right when we got ready to do it, we found out that that city couldn't even keep the lights on on Friday. They had gone to a four-day work week. So we're seeing that already. Yeah. Well, we'll see more of it. And, uh, you know, uh, th this will be another form of emergent self-organizing behavior on the part of a society. I, I completely agree. So um, as we're wrapping up here, I want to make sure people know how they can get your books, read your blog. Your website is... Uh, Kunstler.com, K-U-N-S-T-L-E-R.com, and I will put a link to that in the show notes of today's show. Okay. I will also put a link to some of your books, and I think from what I've looked at, the ones that this audience would be most interested in, of course, would be The Long Emergency, 
uh, Too Much Magic, and World Made by Hand. So I'll make sure I have links to all of those uh, on your site as well. Well, I thank you, Jack. I, I think that they would be interested in them. And um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You're, you're, uh, I think we're on the same page. And uh, I, I don't think that uh, you know validating one's opinions is the be-all and end-all of life because both of us probably encounter a lot of resistance. But it is always nice to talk to somebody who uh, is on the same page. So I appreciate it. Well, yeah, and I, I agree completely with that. And uh, I, I, I think that a lot of this stuff... When I started doing this back in 2008, and I would tell people about my show, um, as soon as they heard survival, they started freaking out. And But even when I explained that it's not this extreme thing, it's about creating sustainability in your own life and resiliency in your own life, individual liberty and freedom, community development, they were all like still kind of very off-put by it. Today, as soon as I started to describe that to a random person, you know, can you meet people, what do you do? I get an immediate, let me tell you what we're doing. And I think that that's because the problems are becoming so evident that resisting the reality is just not possible anymore for people. Well, I'm glad you see it that way. Um, I find that my uh, college audiences and, and indeed some of the conference audiences that I go in front of are pretty clueless. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not seeing quite the same thing. But I'm glad that you're seeing it, and uh, I hope that I encounter it. I think you will more and more, and I think the one thing that's in your favor with talking to college students is that they're not as invested in the false reality as their parents are. So while they may be clueless, they're easier to open up to reality. Because the guy that's 45 years old is in the middle of his 30-year mortgage, has advanced to mid-level management, has, talks to his financial liar every three months to you know give his portfolio a checkup, does not want to hear any of this. It is like poison to him. Um, and everything in his life is wrapped into that paradigm remaining the same, where our youth, they've been taught that, but they intrinsically know something ain't right. And I think a lot of them that tried hope and change a few years ago found out they got no hope and no change, and maybe now it's time for personal responsibility, because when you said there's a failure of leadership, I just want to let you talk, because you were so spot on with it, but the one thing that I thought of that's the greatest failure of leadership in this country is a failure of individual leadership, self-responsibility. And if we can correct that, it's a bottom-up approach. I think that's the only way we fix this. That's a very, very good point, and you put it really nicely. I couldn't agree with you more. Well, hey, man, you are welcome back on the air here. Uh, anytime you want, I know you'll be well received by the audience. And uh, if you ever want to get back on, just get in touch with me or Dorothy, and, and we'll square it away and get you back. Well, thank you very much, Jack. It's been a pleasure being here. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with uh, James Howard Kunstler, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. 
Revolution is you.